0: Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings, malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Managed properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration Services, their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. All right, welcome to Asking Why Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and I have a great friend from grad school on today stephanie sond am i saying that right last name she has got married so i had to make sure before we got on here i didn't screw it up um so stephanie and i were friends during a grad school at fuller and she's an awesome therapist but i'm going to have you uh kind of tell us who you are stephanie and what you do and so catch us up i mean we called up before but you know yeah
1: so um i'm a marriage and family therapist just like you of course and i've been working in the field for about 12 ish years. Gosh. It's crazy. For, I, don't, I don't know where the time went. But um for the last seven years I've been working specifically in addiction and I've worked in all different levels of treatment. During COVID, I was a manager and a residential for women and children. And that yeah. was a whole crazy ride, which is a story for another time. But um <clears throat> right now I work at Loma Linda's Behavioral Med- Medicine Center in Redlands and that uh, houses several inpatient psychiatric units, as well as my unit, which is a detox unit. Mm. And then we also have uh, a partial hospitalization program, which is basically like an intensive outpatient. So I lead a lot of groups there and I, um, I work both on the detox unit and the uh,
0: outpatient. Cool. So tell, tell, you're in California. So tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about kind of what got you into being a therapist, what made you want to be a therapist in general, and then we'll get into why addiction.
1: Oh, well, you know, I was having like a quarter life crisis (laughs) back in the day and I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I just kind of thought of like everything that I like comes back to people and comes back to being interested in people And also seeing beauty in people. Mm -hmm. And so, and when I first became a Christian, I was actually really into design. I really wanted to be, uh, go into like all kinds of different design. But my dad, who's an immigrant, told me, Stephanie, all the artists are starving. So (laughs) I went to college instead. And in college, I became a Christian. And then one of the first things I felt like God told me was like, you know what? A lot of people, Stephanie, are really into beautiful things, but I want you to see beauty in people. Mm. And ever since then, that's been kind of this like journey for me. And, um, so that's kind of how I became a therapist. And,
0: um, well, I always knew that about you in grad school too. You're, you're a very beautiful person and, um, inside and out. And so, You were always one of my favorite people to talk with, and you just always brought so much peace and so much encouragement to me. Um, So it's really awesome to get to reconnect with you. And I've been looking at your Facebook stuff and seeing you get married. I loved your wedding photos, by the way. They're so awesome. Um, Just up in the mountains, and that was just awesome. So anyway, um, yeah, well, that's fantastic. I mean, that idea of art, Right in people as therapists, that's kind of what we get to do is, is we get to see the beauty in people's design and in their stories and in their narratives. And then we get this weird private viewing of it and walk with them in it and help them retell that story and rewrite that story or write a new one. And so, yeah, it's, it's super beautiful to get to do that. And I love your personality when it comes to that for sure. So tell me why addiction, what, what was the shift after grad school? Did you immediately go into that? Um,
1: No, I worked at, um, (laughs) Kind of like what you have essentially like a private practice kind of setting for about five years and then um and then it really was kind of a practical thing i realized i needed to be part of a loan forgiveness program with the government and i needed to work for a non-profit and so i especially after fully you're right i was looking at my friends like who are who are in nonprofits that are still happy and it happened to be my friends who are working in addiction um so it wasn't something i ever would have picked myself uh, uh, I actually have kind of I've had a food addiction in my life but I completely forgot about that I had like total amnesia about that like mm. actually, I went through kind of like addiction treatment myself but I somehow wasn't connecting to having any personal experience at the time when I chose that I thought it was like completely unrelated to me Um, and and I ended up finding I really liked it and I was very surprised because I think our society and kind of functioning people we really make the addict like an other like a yeah. different kind of person that is so different from us when in fact the opposite is true but um which you know we'll probably get into more later but that's why i think is also why i like addiction because i think the core of the human experience is in it
0: oh definitely it's uh i actually just yesterday was thinking about this podcast I was like dang i wish we'd had this before but i'm a uh, uh uh, professor at LSUS here in Treeport, I do like, a, what, what do you call it, in gratis professors. So they don't pay me, but I just do teach the grand rounds for the psychiatrists and the doctors every, like once a quarter or something. And you know, they wanted me to do addiction. So I did a whole PowerPoint on it. And I was like, man, I wish I had this Stephanie conversation before because even though I know what I'm doing, it's just, there's so much to it. And that's what I told them on the thing. I said, the, the, you know, but think about it. Like, I was reading some stats of like uh, when I was preparing, i see if I'm written down somewhere, um, but it was like 70% of kids. Um, have drank alcohol, or seventy seven percent of kids have drank alcohol before eighteen. Fifty percent of them have done an illegal drug. Fifty percent of them have smoked marijuana. Um, one out of five of them have taken prescription pills. Okay, I can remember it. Um, you know, and I was like reading these stats. I'm like, oh my gosh! Like again, so much of it is is all of us, right? I mean, that stat means that the large majority of people have struggled way before emotional development, way before maturity with, with addiction or with things that can cause addiction really quickly in children especially. And, yeah, I was like talking to the doctors, like all of us are addicted to something. We all, most of us have something that we wouldn't call like a heroin addict where we label that person as like an other or a crack addict or even a sex addict, which I work with a lot. When in reality, we do have a lot of that stuff, and especially with phones and technology, which I'm sure we'll get into some. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know a person who a lot of people who aren't, don't have a cell phone addiction, you know? So I think it's, it's really important to normalize that, not normalize it in the sense of like, it's okay, but you know, normalize it in the sense of like, let's not other people and act like we're not capable of it or we don't have stuff in our life.
1: Right. If the brain chemistry is the same, whether it's your phone or you know cocaine, it doesn't matter. You're it's hijacking your reward system in pretty much the same way. So
0: yeah and that was the kind of big argument about pot not being addictive right that and then we we learn now through neuroscience like well there's you know substance addiction or chemical addiction and there's behavioral addiction and they both Mm -hmm. affect the brain so
1: well and the other big thing i guess just To get on the pot tangent real yeah, quick, because it totally irritates me when people talk about cannabis as not being really addictive. For one thing, it's so much more potent than this is not your grandmother's weed, this is not like the hippy <laughs> dippy weed, it's so potent these days.
0: Yeah, it's not swag, That's,
1: even when you know you when you get it from a shop and people want to be like it's medicinal, blah blah blah. But if it's not from a store, so it's very, very potent, and then if it's not from like someplace, uh, where you of our i guess legitimately buying it then the likelihood that it has fentanyl in it is extremely high if you Mm -hmm. get anything on the street there's probably has fentanyl in it so it is or meth or a combination of everything so cannabis is not what it used to be so i think it has this you have this association with it. Is this like medicinal i'm not saying there can be no medicinal properties but not the way most people are who are addicted are
0: using it now yeah that's a great point that there are ways to do it i mean that's such everything almost you know there are things that are beneficial for certain things but the the margin for error is so small because of the change in culture and what we're getting and what we're consuming even i would say the same thing about psychopharmacology you know it's like i'm not against medication But if we haven't done like exercise and deep breathing and drank water and ate better and and a bunch of other things first, you know, obviously if you're suicidal, you've gotten too far, we need to get on that. But a lot of times we start out with this really heavy thing when in reality, like we're not even doing the things we can control first before we get to this thing as if it's not going to also have consequences or side effects. And so it's just an interesting balance of like, yeah, no, we can't, we can't just overgeneralize that it's all good or all bad. We got to find like, what's it doing for me as an individual? And I think that's why therapy's great is we don't have to get into the, the overgeneralization. We can just say, okay, is this good for you? you know, you're smoking pot every day. Is this really <laughs> not an addiction for you? Like you're getting up in the morning, you're doing it yeah. at night. Like you're not connected. We don't have to debate with the world about um, what we really think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The proof is in the pudding. So
0: often. Absolutely. Um, okay. So what do you like the most about kind of working with substance abuse, so substance treatment, all that stuff?
1: um well it's i think this quote from charles dickens is one of my favorite quotes in all of life and i think it's very true the substance use at the the beginning of tale of two cities he says it was the best of times it was the worst of times and i think that is so true about addiction because on one hand you see a lot of destruction i've had at least six clients die in the last year that Mm. i know about not to mention how many that i don't know about um it's so hard but also there's so much recovery and new beginnings and basically miracles so
0: 100 percent.
1: so it's it's the best of times it's the worst of times there's so many horrible things that you see um and yeah but also there's a lot of beauty and new beginnings and that is the moment i live for and i think that my favorite my favorite part is seeing the light come back on in someone's eyes like they're kind of in this malaise of an addiction as I'm sure we'll talk about it gets right after when you come, when you stop using a substance it gets worse before it gets better mm-hmm. you know there's there's acute withdrawal there's post-acute withdrawal and the person just feels horrible but then with time then they start to become themselves and again that you see that little light in their eyes and it you think like that's you again it's no longer that substance is controlling your life like you're back you know, like, and that person has been missing for a long time and their friends and family and everybody's been missing them, you know? So just that moment of seeing like, you're here again, you know, is so I live for those moments. Mm. So there's nothing like it. There's nothing better than seeing someone be in recovery.
0: That's great. And you're a hundred percent right that it is a miracle. <clears throat> we get to see it every day, you know, and, and maybe not every day do we see the actual miracle, but in our offices, you see people you know, and when I work with human trafficking, you know, you see people who have been trafficked for years, you know, get their job back, get their kids back, you know, their light come back on in their eyes. They start to believe in themselves and have worth and value again. And yeah, there, there's nothing like it, but man, there's so much crap in between. Uh, and so you just, you wait for those moments and those things get you through it. All right. So today, uh, you know, while I asked you to talk as you had posted about that book. Um, and so, we're going to tell them what the book is, but uh, I saw you post about it and I was like, oh man, that w- that's, that's a great book. I would love to talk about that on the podcast. And then I reached out and said, Hey, you, you're smarter than I am. So re- read it and you're reading it. So tell me, tell me about it. Um, so it's called dopamine nation and uh, the author, I didn't know what her, how to say her last name. So it's Anna, what? Lenke. Yeah. And so this is a best selling, best New York Times best selling book right now. That's out. Um, it's called dopamine nation and you guys can look it up and check it out. But tell us first about kind of who she is and the author and what's her story and all that.
1: Mm -hmm. So Anna Lunke is a psychiatrist and among other things, she, um, is the medical director of Stanford addiction medicine and chief of the Stanford addiction medicine dual diagnosis clinic. And she's worked for years in addiction. Um, an- another thing that people might know her from is that she was featured in the 2020 Netflix documentary called the social dilemma, which in many ways sets the I knew I knew that
0: point. name. I couldn't connect See? it. Yeah, yep, yep.
1: Which I love. That's another documentary that I love and rave about, but that for those of for for people who haven't seen it, it's a, it's about why social media is so addictive and has such power to divide us. So um, that's a little bit about her.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I always say this about Social Dilemma. It, it it was so good. And I've used so much of it to integrate in so much of my talks and, and stuff that we do. But it definitely left me with like not, nothing to do. And I, I think that's the great thing about this book. And what we're going to talk about today is there's actually some practical things to tell you what to do. I felt like Social Dilemma was like, everything's on fire. It's all terrible. See you later. <laughs> yeah,
1: there's going to be a civil war at some point.
0: Yeah, oh, but, God. yeah but we don't know what to, to do. <laughs> So that's a lot of people that have watched it been like, it just kind of ends leaving you like, well, we're in trouble, but we don't have any clue. So let's, we're going to hopefully today give people some clue on what to do. So what's the overall premise of the book from your perspective?
1: Um, So I would say that uh, the main point of the book is that our brain isn't designed to live in the world that we live in now. Mm. So our brain was designed for an environment that was hard. So, for example, I have to go kill my dinner, or I have to go raise food that will eventually become my dinner in eight months. You know, And of course there's a lot of room for error and failure and complications along the way, like storms that destroy your crops or the hunt doesn't go well, or just essentially a lot of difficulty. Um, and so our brains, so what she talks about is, one of the most revolutionary discoveries in the last hundred years is that pleasure and pain are located in the same area of the brain. Mm -hmm. And she describes it kind of like a teeter totter or a balance. And the way our brain has coped with dealing with all this difficulty is that when something happens that is difficult, which was, you know, back in the day, most of life, everything, um, (laughs) everything, you know, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, um, our brain would then, balance out you know release some dopamine so how you can see that in your own life in action is if you go on a run you do something that initially or i know you do jujitsu like initially if you don't feel like doing it but then you experience a reward later so Mm -hmm. our brain is set up to kind of um there's a pleasure and pain balance and then when we go through something hard then it will kind of auto correct and give us like a boost of dopamine and kind of other like pleasurable chemicals to reward us for you did that good job
0: yeah at least it used to right
1: (laughs) it used to but as yes but the problem is now obviously we kind of live in the opposite environment that our brain was designed for so our we live in a world where pleasure things that are pleasurable to our brain are so easily accessible whether that's in food you know food is engineered in labs to make it really addictive you know there's sugar everywhere they've actually found in in, uh, experiments that sugar is more addictive than cocaine Mm -hmm. so sugar is a huge addiction speaking of addictions Um, or it could be technology uh, substances there's just so many things to be addicted to everything on the internet you know entertainment all kinds of things that are really pleasurable for our brain and our brain kind of doesn't know what to do with all this dopamine. And so it it still is doing that teeter-totter thing. So when we're, when we're getting all this dopamine overload, it's, it's auto-correcting to the other side, but even harder to the pain side. So in a nutshell, that explains kind of why, even though our society is richer and has more leisure time and so many good things more than any time in human history, especially in Western nations, we're seeing people, uh, Basically, more and more miserable. Anxiety rates are up. Depression rates are up. Like um, people have more and more diagnoses. You know, so even though we have so much more, you think we'd be happier, but we're we're basically more diagnosably miserable. Yeah, than we've ever been.
0: And I, I think, man, that's such a great point. Be, and it, it, we talk about this all the time as clinicians. But yeah, that that's so true because the world keeps telling us the more stuff you have, the more comfort you have, the more that that's related to peace. Right. And I think that's the interesting thing about theology or at least being a Christian is that was never the story of the Bible. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not this prosperity gospel of follow Jesus and everything's going to be more peaceful. It's follow me and things are gonna be tough and hard and you're going to have to die to yourself and you're going to have to struggle. And there's, but that perseverance that you get from that is going to build character. It doesn't say it's going to build more comfort. And so, Mm -hmm. um, can there be comfort in that? Can there be peace in that work? Absolutely. But I think that is just such a, it's such a, to me, such a clear indication of of the worldview versus the Christian view and how the if we follow the way of the world, we're going to seek comfort, we're going to seek money, we're going to seek all these things the world tells us is going to bring us peace. And yet all it's doing is bringing more anxiety, more depression, more suicide rate. I did a post the other day about men and it was just, a, a, you know, hashtag men lives, men's lives matter because I was reading the stats on I think it's 35 to 55 year old males kill themselves four times higher than there's a homicide rate.
1: Hmm. And it's
0: like, that's insane. Like, so we four times hate ourselves more than we even hate other people. And like the world would tell us, Oh no, we're all against each other. There's all this conflict. There's all this political debate and racism and sexism and all this stuff. And and I'm not saying those things don't exist, but man, we hate ourselves the most. Yeah. You know, and it's like that. Go ahead.
1: Well, I think that actually, as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking of your other podcast on, I think it was on success. Oh, yeah. So, but also just that. Um, uh, oh, sorry. I lost my train of thought. I there was it goes on with that. Sorry, you finish your thought and am yeah, we'll catch back idea. up.
0: Yeah, no, it's, I was just thinking, you know, again, it's just that that basic principle of, if you listen to the world and do what the world's telling you to do, it's going to lead to all this terrible stuff. And it's like being happy, right? The stat is what a 60, if you have a $65,000 a year household income, anything over that's not going to increase your happiness. Mm -hmm. And people don't understand that, but it's like, it's so simple. If you drive a, you know, 2003 Honda Accord or you drive a 2022 Bronco. Yeah. You're going to feel good about that for like a week. But if you're a parent or married or have a life, that Bronco is going to get filled up with trash and crap and junk, and and you know you're not going to care what color it is. I think I told this on the podcast before, but I just got a new MacBook, and I stood there for like 15 minutes trying to decide which color I wanted to get, as if it was going to make a bit of difference to me. Like as soon as I walked out, but it's like that. It's that you got to do this thing and get this thing, and yeah, your whole the whole society's like, oh, don't buy this, don't spend all this money, and then regret it. And that's also tied into worth and value and success and addiction. And so yeah, it's spot on. Um, so how does that, so how is that all that dopamine and all that balancing of pleasure and pain? How is that playing into addiction?
1: Um, well,
0: cause you so would say it's increased or I mean, would you say addiction yeah, is increasing? So and,
1: because so there's that, te- there's that kind of basic teeter totter mechanism, which we talked about, but What happens is, is that, well, you can kind of, a lot of us are addicted to coffee. So, I mean, easy way is to kind of think of kind of an addiction that's close to to home home for most people, which is coffee. So, when you, at the beginning, when you start drinking coffee, your brain will kind of get more awake, you know. Um,
0: And caffeine specifically, right? I mean, that's. Caffeine. Yeah. yeah,
1: Caffeine specifically. So, if you have caffeine or, I mean, it could be through coffee or energy or what have you, but. When you when you stop or sorry, then when you have it every day, then your brain just needs it just to maintain, right? So your Mm -hmm. brain will downregulate its own caffeine production, and you just need it to feel normal. And
0: wait, uh, the brain the brain makes caffeine.
1: Yes, that's a naturally occurring, and also cannabinoids like in cannabis. That's a naturally occurring Mm -hmm. chemical. So in the brain, but um, so your brain makes its own dopamine. It makes its own caffeine for example but then there's all this caffeine showing up or let's say in the case of a drug all this dopamine showing up um and the brain's like i don't need to make more of this you know so it's kind of down regulating and a lot of times it's it's kind of down regulating too hard it's really underproducing. um so she describes it as like gremlins so so that there's these gremlins that they're, they're camping out on the pain side Uh of it. You're getting so much dopamine and then there's these like gremlins and they're like bigger and bigger and bigger gremlins that are, um, basically kind of bouncing on your teeter totter to just, um, to really hit the pain side. And that makes you, and that results in the universal symptoms of withdrawal, which Mm or like depression, anxiety, irritability, you know, so whether that's you're coming off a substance or a smartphone or whatever, you know, you don't have your drug of choice, and then you're just like really miserable. And it's not just acute withdrawal. So not just, it goes beyond. um, A headache. uh, Kind of just like the immediate effects of coming Mm -hmm. off the drug, but to this like post acute withdrawal, which is kind of a general depressed mood, you know, long, long after the substance is out of your system because you're, because your uh, brain has down-regulated those chemicals so much. So you're now like you're not at baseline anymore. You're like you're trying to come out of a ditch essentially.
0: Yeah, I'm going to give a real personal example of that. So I don't know if I've done this on the podcast, but I have from like a talking perspective. But probably two years ago, no, now it's almost three years ago now. Wow, yeah. About three years ago, uh, JC and I didn't do social media for Lent. So we are like, hey, no social media for Lent. I'd already been doing all these talks. I knew it was really bad for your brain. And, uh, when we came back from Lent, I just stayed with it. And so I just said, I'm not, you know, I'm going to be on social media and I'm going to post positive things and do our Facebook page from the practice, but I'm not going to post any more pictures of our kids. And, uh, in anything that we're doing, that's like my kid got baptized or I did these things. And again, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I just personally made a personal choice and it took like, I would sit around the house and my kids would be doing something super cute. And I would think, God, I got to post a picture of this, you know? And then I was like, man. I want to post like, I want to show my kids off a lot to get that dopamine, to get people liking it, to get people to comment on how cute they are, to validate me, to make me feel better. And I started being so aware of how long that had been going on. And um, so I'm like, man, this is crazy. Well, then it was this weird lull of like, I found myself like my kids would be playing and I was like, I can't really enjoy this that much because I'm not, I'm not ready to post about it or I'm not really taking a picture of it. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, was a lot of my enjoyment that I felt that high and that euphoria of getting to quote unquote, share that or get the likes. And, and yes, it's nuanced, right? It's like, some of it is just wanting to share it with your friends and wanting to share it with people. But what you don't realize is happening to your brain when you're doing that is you're getting way more dopamine, even with good intentions than you can handle. And so then when you don't have it, it it plunges. And so it took about, I'd say three months, you know, 90 days or so, And then all of a sudden I was like, never even thinking about getting my phone out. And now three years later, like I love watching my kids play, but I just never think, oh, I want to post this or, oh, somebody should see this every once in a while. I'm like, I am like, man, this is so cute. I want the world to see it, but it's not the same as like me actually thinking that I'm going to do that. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. It takes a while for the brain to reset, but
0: I felt so much shame. I was like, oh my gosh, like how much of a tool am I that I'm, you know, like how unhealthy was I to just. You know, but it's it's not shame. It's not bad. It's it's the, the world we live in now, and we have not adapted to knowing that stuff is even happening.
1: Well, and also that there's companies all over the world that are targeting your brain. You know, they're wanting they were setting it up so that you. I forget what the, the word is, but basically that you you get a it's not a predictable amount of likes. Like sometimes you'll get more likes, sometimes you'll get other. So your brain can't adjust. doesn't know exactly. It's not completely predictable. So your brain likes that. Like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to, you know? So they've totally hacked our reward system. You know, like we talked about with the chips, the Doritos that are targeted just to make sure that you can't just have one, you need to have 50,000, you know? Yeah. Um, so
0: that's such a good point. I mean, people it's, really—it's not just it.
1: things naturally occurring in the environment. There's scientists sitting there thinking about how can they get you to click more. Yeah. How can they spend you? How can they make you spend more time on that device?
0: Absolutely. And, and putting things at the end of aisles to make you, you know, pick those things that are more addictive than. I mean, companies literally pay more money, right, to be on the bookend of the aisle because they know people are going to see it and they know they're going to buy it. Doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's even what everybody's buying. It means it's what somebody's paying to get there so they can get it. It is so crazy. Like, I mean, even the algorithm on social media, right? It's like, I'll post something and it'll have 240 shares. And then I'll post something that I know that people it's way better. And it'll have like 70. And again, that doesn't matter who cares. But my point is, is like, I know it's not the the people who follow me liking it or not liking it more. It's not letting me get stuck. It's, it's making me have to work to keep posting. And it's wild. It is very wild.
1: So, essentially in our world you have to go upstream to not be addicted because if you go with the flow you will be addicted to multiple things like no matter what you just it's just a fact of life
0: yeah what is it? 82 percent comorbidity rate or something like that if you have one addiction you got another one something crazy yeah. so and, what oh, go ahead sorry no go.
1: and so that's with that that um when you go into that acute withdrawal or post acute withdrawal, then you just need whatever it is just to feel normal, I guess, just to emphasize that again, like you just, you need to check your phone just to feel like kind of okay, not to make you happy, but just to feel okay in your own skin. So you're not feeling great anymore. You're just feeling kind of okay. So, and that's what a lot of people that I work with with substance use is like, they stopped liking whatever the substance was a long time ago. It doesn't give them a high, they just, they just need to use meth. feel normal. They just need to drink to feel okay in their own skin, you know? So it it becomes more of a way to fight off the withdrawal symptoms. You know, we have to look at our phone just to fight off the withdrawal symptoms. It's not really that it's like giving you so much dopamine actually.
0: Yeah. That's so crazy. I was saying that yesterday, like you're not actually even producing that much. You're just avoiding withdrawal. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's what's nuts. It's like, you're not even getting high anymore. You're just trying not to hurt.
1: You're just, yeah, you're just running
0: away from the withdrawal. Mm. So what does she in the book kind of recommend uh, for people to do to address like addiction? So people, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my, well, it is all of us. I mean, let's just be honest. And if you heard yeah. my Facebook story or that social media story, like, and you're going, oh crap, I do that too. Join the club. Like hopefully the the point of this conversation is not shaming people into feeling bad about struggling, but is to, to make us all aware that we have the ability to do some things differently. So we're not being controlled. So we're more in control of our life. We're more in control of real connection and to sharing the gospel, if we're a Christian and not being kind of pulled out of the fight. So what does she say um, in the book?
1: Mm-hmm. So she says a lot of different things. And I just, as a side note plug, I highly recommend people read this book because if one thing, it's very, very easy to read. It's told through stories. So, in her own stories too, she shares her own, she's very, very vulnerable about her own experiences with addiction. So it's a really easy read. But just to highlight some of the things that she talks about, one is dopamine fasting. So whatever the thing is of uh, fasting from it. Now some of that she suggests 30 days. Um I think that's like a bare, bare minimum. Absolutely. Because like your story just pointed out, uh the the post acute withdrawal usually Lasts up to 90 or 120 days. That's usually about 120 days is when I see people kind of turn a corner. And if you're out of that, if you're able to make it to 120 days, then you're more out of the woods. But um, so she really talks about dopamine fasting. So depending on what it is, that may be easier or not so easy to do. You know, if you have a food addiction, you can't not eat food. You know, if you have, if you have a cell phone addiction, which probably of us do, you can't, you need your phone, um, maybe to just function in life, you know? So, but she would say to have periods where you're putting it away, you know, where you're not, you're away from that thing. If you can't, uh, if you can't live life without it, of course, it really depends on what the thing is, but if it's a substance, um, you know, a lot of people, of course, in substance use, that I see in substance treatment don't initially think they have a problem. They mm. come because someone else thinks they have a problem. So, um, and that's true in her practice too. And she really recommends that people just try uh, abstinence for a while. You know, by the time I see people, they usually don't have a choice over that anymore. They just have to because there's a lot on the line. They're going to lose their job, their marriage, their, you know, whatever it is, life. kids' life. So, um, but let's say people who aren't quite as far you know backed into that corner as much to choose to put you know to step away from that thing for you know she would say 30 i would say maybe at least 90 or one hundred and twenty days um and just see how you feel i think maybe the smaller amount of time is a little easier to stomach if you kind of set the time lower it's easier than you know maybe 90 days feels like a long time but um just start, okay, what am, what am I gonna do just for this month? What can I do to kind of change my behavior just for this month to give my brain a break and not be so closely tied to this thing? Um, she also talks about self, what she calls self-binding strategies, which is essentially like setting yourself up for success. So it's, um, and not putting yourself in really hard to deal with situations. So like self, self-control is a muscle, so that you don't have an infinite amu- amount of self-control. So um, so people I work with, what I'll tell them is like, if there's your favorite liquor store that you go to, like you need to find a different route to work, you know, or if your connect lives off this freeway off ramp, you need to find a different, you can't go, you just can't exit over there, mm-hmm. you know, or um, kind of if there's things that you strongly associate with your addiction, changing them or limiting them so that you, aren't so triggered you know so that might be like not hanging out with your drinking buddies you know yeah. or especially not hanging out with them in a bar you know or not going to bars you know where there's like alcohol is all backlit and you know set up beautifully like a shrine you know so yeah it's like how are you going to resist that you know so it's all the bottles are so beautifully arranged kind of different things to know like just kind of thinking about yourself and your own addiction and what can you do to limit the amount of temptation that you're going to experience or set yourself up to, um, handle that situation successfully? Like I'm going to call someone, you know, if I'm in this situation, um, if it's a drug, you know, that has a lot of consequences. to using. it.
0: Yeah. In the beginning, it's so much of teaching people to be mindful. Like just pay attention to all these things that you've never paid attention to before. I mean, even like saying that about the bar being lit up, like most people don't even even take that into consideration that that's like, specific for a reason and like, not just up there. Like why even show it, right? It's not like showing you the options of what you have to drink. It's not like, here's what we have. They would just line them up, but you know, then they backlight it and all that kind of stuff. They paid money, good money to get you to to want it and see it that way. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I would say if it's not substance, so we do a lot of sex addiction, a lot of technology addiction, a lot of just all that stuff, social media issues here. Um, you know, it's putting your phone up, it's getting home and if you're at home at 530, going and putting your phone in another bedroom, putting it on the charger and, and being done with it. And it, it's amazing to me how many people can't do that and how many people go, oh, well, I'll just set it over here and I just won't mess with it. And then their spouse is like, yeah. hey, why are you on your phone again? Hey, we talked about this. You aren't going to be on your phone from six to eight while we get the kids baths and while we get to bed and when we do all this kind of stuff. Oh, well, I'm just checking it for a second you know, the amount of fights over just checking it for a second that I see in my office are unreal, you know, and you can't beat it. And that's why, that's the one thing I love about social dilemma. But I say all the time, like, we're not going to win. Have you, uh, this is completely off the cuff, but have you read, uh, Dr. Pam King's book? Did you see the one she put out? So they did that, did a recent one. She's supposed to come on here and talk about it. Um, man, I'm going to butcher it. Cause I didn't think about having it in front of me. Um, uh, Stone Age Minds or something like that. Um, sorry, Dr. King. Uh, anyway, it's great. It's, uh, it's about, um, ep- oh, good Lord. It's about, um, evolutionary psychology and Christianity and the mix of the two. And basically she's saying the same thing. Like you, you have this caveman brain and yet you're trying to use these devices and these things and this dopamine and this, this system that doesn't work. You know, we haven't developed, our prefrontal and our brains haven't developed more, you know, much more than cavemen to some degree. Um, and yet we're in this world, that's full of, uh, technology and, and all that stuff. So it's a great book. You should check it out. It's an easy read too. Yeah. Well, you also
1: have to let me know when she comes on and I'll make sure to check that
0: one out. Yeah. We've been emailing back and forth. She got sick or something. So we had to reschedule and I need to uh, just remember it as we're talking about this to reconnect with her. Um, okay. So, if particularly as someone, you know, in the mental health field that treats addiction in a hospital setting, so you do it more in like a IOP inpatient, outpatient, um, what it was, what was very helpful for you about the book? Like what, because you obviously knew a lot about addiction already had been in the field for a while. So what about this book was the most eye opening for you? And if you're a therapist, listen to this or a clinician or a doctor or whatever, what would be helpful? Like maybe they didn't know.
1: So I think one of the most helpful things for me is that explain the brain chemistry in a way that I could understand. And I've heard brain chem, you know, I've been in school, I've heard all the lectures and I've heard so many, so many classes and things on brain chemistry, but you know, all those big words. And I just, I don't know, there's people like me, but it's hard for me to keep straight, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's always something I kind of vaguely understood at the, but I think this lays it out so simply that it's it's easy, not only is it easy for me to understand, but it's really easy for me to communicate. And it's and it really helps me explain what's going on for someone an easy way to where they can understand why they're feeling so miserable and that it will get better. You know, mm. and also kind of going back to what people can do to address it or change it, is also to that the answer isn't to do something easy or to go for more dopamine, the answer is actually another one of her recommendations is to choose hard things. Yeah, And this is a, the, the, the way she lays out the brain chemistry. It really explains why that is. So, so yeah, one of her suggestions is to, to pursue things like exercise, um, and, you know, building friendships over time and different things that don't, that are good for you, that don't give you a dopamine release, like reading a book that's dense, you know, that your brain, you know, taking an ice cold water bath, you know, that it it feels painful in the moment. You, you do not want to do it, but then your brain will give you a dopamine release. So instead of kind of feeding that cycle of less and less dopamine, is if you push into the pain, and by pain, I don't mean like lying on a bed of nails, but just like pain, like things that don't, you initially don't want to do you know, like going on a run, you know, or going, you know, exercising Like everything in your brain will tell you that you will be so much happier. If you just, if your bottom just stays on that couch, like all evening, you know, you'll like, that will make you happy, but your brain is actually miscalculating, you know, that's actually not true. Like Mm -hmm. when they do the research, not even just from, um, from this book, another kind of related resource I love is the happiness pod that, happiness lab podcast by this um, professor at Yale. But anyway, she talked a lot about that there too. But your brain will lie to you and tell you what you think will make you happy, but it won't. So kind of leaning into that pain. Um, and that can really help me tell patients, like expect it to be hard. and uh, And so much of life is like about what we expect, right? If we think it's gonna be easy or what our expectations are really framed. If we know that there's going to be a hard part and then it's going to get better, it's easier for us to get through that hard part.
0: Yeah. It's, it's like uh, it's like labor we or, or an injury or whatever, you know, JC, my wife would, you know, had both of our kids naturally. Um, we got lucky that she was able to, you know, she, we did the Bradley method. We did all this stuff, but the pain was with a purpose, right? she knew there was a baby coming out of it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if that pain, that's the beauty of life and the, and the, the con, right, is that there's a lot of pain in it, but you don't remember it always. You know, like that's why we have other babies is because we don't remember the pain of childbirth. It hurts really bad in the moment, but there's a purpose. And and recently she, uh, actually currently, she cut her toe really bad. And so uh, she's been in an excruciating pain because there was like a stitch that she had to get through a nerve. And so um, anyway, the the other night we were sitting there and she was like, I got to go to the podiatrist because I don't understand why it's hurting. And so she went and the doctor was basically like, it is what it is. Like, it's going to heal, but it's going to hurt. And then she's been great. But it was like, she's sitting in that moment. If there is a way to relieve this extreme pain and I can, but I don't know that I like the option, it makes it worse. But if I know this is just what I have and this is what I'm gonna have to deal with, then I can deal with it. And I think that's so much of life, right? Is like the worst thing with kids and family and marriage is to be in pain, but not know if you can, if there's a way out. Yeah. And when you know, there's not a way out and you're just going to have to bear it sometimes there's actually a lot of relief in that
1: yeah and that reminds me of you know a whole other topic is the disease of addiction you know and how like how basically it's 90 percent a thinking problem and like 10 percent a behavior problem but part of that disease of your brain or or messed up thinking whatever name you want to give it is mm-hmm. um is thinking that same kind of minimizing of the pain also minimizes the consequences of the addiction so your brain will tell you like Oh, it wasn't that bad, you know, and it's, you know, it's not really going to go like this time there'll be a different result. Mm-hmm. You know, like this time I can drink and I won't like end up passed out, like having peed myself, you know, like this time it's going to be different. I'll just be able to manage it, you know, or there'll be all this kind of, so our brain's ability to forget pain can kind of really, uh, get us in the end sometimes, because those things that actually we really don't, we need to stop doing it can, uh it helps us have children which is good that's why we're all still here but it also can help us forget that like our addiction is causing a whole lot of consequences in our life because addiction just wants to keep going it doesn't want anything to get in its way so it's going to downplay all of that in your brain
0: that's right yeah it's such a double-edged sword and i think that's you know that's why community and and therapy and and group right i know you do a lot of groups like group is so helpful because you're, you're all working through this stuff together and talking through mm-hmm. it and being vulnerable and, and doing the work yeah. and, and man, that, that makes, you know, the, the whole thing worth it. Um,
1: yeah. And if someone shares like, Oh, I had this consequence and you remember, Oh yeah, I had that consequence too. I forgot about that. You know? And Oh yeah, I had this other consequence oh, me too. You know, wait, turns out this is ruining my life, you know? So
0: <laughs> yeah, we I do
1: have a problem, you know, like people halfway through treatment, they're like, yeah, you know, I, I,
0: shoot <laughs> yeah this is problematic yeah we uh it's well they're you know they're so tuned out or I say we, we're so tuned out as I was with like social media stuff or whatever other things I've struggled with in my life but you you don't even you're so dopamined up and so disassociated and so disconnected that you don't see it as a problem it's fine and your brain's lying to you and you're not being honest with anybody around you and so it's just a complete mess and once you start to get that awareness i don't know about you but i find people a lot you know they'll be mad. they're not really mad at me well some people are but they get mad like wait this sucks like this this got way harder than better it was better when i didn't wasn't aware of this stuff mm-hmm. you know it was, it was better when i wasn't paying attention to every moment you know we'll talk about this with sex addiction and with porn addiction and all these kind of things there's like man, the, once we get into sobriety and past sobriety and a year in people are like, well, I'm never watching porn anymore, but I didn't realize how many times I was lusting or how many times I was having these thoughts. Like, you know, it's not that just you get sober and then everything goes away. Yeah. Yeah. that, That first year or two, almost three years in sex addiction is repairing and resetting and becoming more aware of like all the little nuanced ways in which you were screwing up or you were unhealthy or you were being tricked by your brain. It's not just like the behavioral outcome of looking at something, having the drink, shooting the heroin, whatever the thing is. Does that make sense?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're left with when you stop using, not only are you in a dopamine deficit state, but you're left with all the issues that caused you to (laughs) be drawn to that addiction in the first place. So all that you were trying to like numb or cover over, like, you know, deal with in, in that unhealthy way. Um, they're they're still there waiting right there waiting for you but
0: Mm -hmm. no for sure so what would you say the book had kind of the did it have any personal impact on your life personally as you kind of went through this and not just from a clinical perspective but just in yeah i
1: I think kind of very similar to you and that it just it gave me a lot more awareness of when i'm going through my own withdrawals you know from for me it's I'm such a YouTube spiral art. like I will not, I will not sit down to a movie because I feel like that's a big waste of my life, you know, but boy, will I spend like half a day on YouTube? No problem. Like really easy. Cause I'm like, Oh, now I want to learn about orcas. Oh, now this, you know, you know, just anything, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's so I like to learn and it's just, it's, you know, wonderful and it's horrible. So,
0: um,
1: it just made me kind of notice even my own withdrawal symptoms of being like irritable with my husband or like, I, you know, kind of like noticing, Oh wait, I need to go find my phone again, you know, or just, and I grew up without a TV. So I was raised by hippie parents. I didn't have a TV. So I would think I would be immune to this, you know, but
0: it's,
1: it got me just like it, you know, it gets everybody. So I think just but I think it's just kind of giving me more awareness of the cycle of like, a, let's say a lower key addiction in certain ways, or one that doesn't have so many intense life consequences. Um, it's also showed me how I can get addicted to work, you know, and because you know, there's a lot of course reward with work. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of addictions that can disguise themselves and, or seem not show their true colors, but, you know, it's like, I'm really looking to this thing to deliver on my identity and kind of give me this like deeper validation or, you know, those kind of things. So, um, and, and not just that, but I don't know what else to do. I just know how to work. I'm a kind of a one trick pony sometimes, you know, so kind of seeing like, Oh, I, uh, one thing on a talks a lot about is like being open to being bored just with the moment. Mm. Like there's not a lot going on, the, you know, like then you're just left with the moment and not even kind of setting yourself self up with rewards for like, when I get home, I get to do this. Or when I this, I get to just kind of being in the moment and being okay with the moment. So it helped me kind of notice like times when I'm like, I'm going to start work doing work, you know, but not really because I need to do that or that would be good for me, but just because like, I don't know what else to do. Like, I don't know how else to kind of fill that void, so to speak. So um, so that's, it's it's been really good for me too, you know? So I would love to say that, you know I'm above it all and you know like I already had everything on lock but actually it's been really good
0: for good for me as well that's awesome yeah man that self-awareness and that humility of just as clinicians you know clients put us on this pedestal or, or even as pastors and leaders or whatever people put people on pedestals like they're they've figured it all out and they don't ever screw up and and that's just not true. We're all in the middle of, of trying to figure it out and, and, uh, being unaware and becoming more aware and my clients. And I know yours are such a gift to us. In that same thing, you know, you'll say something out of your mouth and then you're like, Oh, I need to listen to that. Like, and <laughs> uh, not following that with my wife or yeah. Yeah. Whatever. I tell people this, I'm like, Oh, I'm giving you this advice in marriage, but I'm definitely going to go home today and do something stupid. You know, like I'm less often and fewer and far between, you know, hopefully, but it still happens it, the, having the information isn't the problem <laughs> you know nobody Let's like cigarettes like nobody's like yeah cigarettes are a good idea but people still smoke them so it's not a lack of knowledge that they're bad for you that's the major issue um so what would you if, if people are out there and they don't believe this or they you know they don't think it's that serious or maybe we're being dramatic or you know this author's like the whole dopamine thing is not really a big of a deal what what would you say um you're worried about if we fail. You know, what's the if we don't learn this lesson and we don't adjust as, a, let's say, individuals, but also as just a society, or if we go even further as a, as the church, what do you think um, is going to happen, or what do you see happening?
1: Yeah, I think you know, there's probably a a lot of different answers to that, um, but I think the simplest one is just that we're going to be chasing our tails and wondering what's happening. You know, we're going to and we're going to be trying to address mental health issues that are really addiction issues that we can't address until. Or maybe don't even need to be addressed because if we deal with addiction, ninety percent of that mental health issue is going to go away. You know, certainly there are people who have a standalone mental health issue that will n- still need to be treated after after their addiction is addressed. But a lot of mood issues uh, are are uh, really exacerbated by addiction, and so mm-hmm. if you don't get that under control on some level there's just like no point in even trying to get to the mood issue so um i think specifically with i think specifically for our era we're going to see more and more people we already are seeing like young people becoming you know depression rates are up suicide rates are up you know like just in the last 10 years
0: like 200 percent
1: yeah. It's huge. And we're going to be left wondering why, you know, like why is that what's going on? So I think if we don't pay attention to the messages of that, of this book, we're going to be chasing our tails, running after solutions that won't really have an effect if we can't really see like this is at the core of what's going on.
0: Yeah. it's good. Would you say, and I'm not pushing back, I mean, maybe a little bit, but let's dig a little bit and maybe, maybe we'll get into this. Um, but for me, you know, just trauma focused, I feel like that's what's under, but that's even underneath the addiction piece. Like we got to treat the addiction, but the why of why did someone start using that substance in the first place? And why did they need so much dopamine? I think we have to also really be dealing with. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. And I think that's, I think it's both because I think no, people get addictions that don't actually have trauma, mm-hmm. you know, but you'll never get to the trauma until you get to the addiction until you're, until someone has like, some sobriety. I have coping skills. Let's just, you know, arbitrarily, you know, but about that, that they can actively use. You can't get to the trauma because they're going to, you're, every time you open that up, you know, you try to deal with that in a clinical setting, you're going to trigger their substance use. So yep. it's, you know, cause that's their only coping. So unless you kind of deal with the substance use and give them, help them to have other coping skills, which I would say probably takes about six to nine months at least. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to get them through that early phase. Like you can't ever get to that trauma.
0: Right. I think, I think the thing that I'm trying to figure out in my own practice and in general is, is that dance of, you know, the coping skills though in and of themselves, if they're not steeped in getting, you know, not just behavior modification, but understanding why it is that these coping skills are happening and what those coping skills say about our worth and value and our security then that's what I see as the missing piece a lot is you'll have a behavioral function. Like, okay, we need these coping skills. So if I do these things, I do these behaviors instead of these behaviors, then I won't want this other thing. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, keep, keep, keep talking. <laughs> well, I mean
0: like, you know, you teach people uh, to replace, you know, go exercise, you teach people really? to eat better. You teach people to do mindful meditation and yes they need those tools right to reach out to a person to connect with to confess whatever but if it's not steeped in and i think that is the and i'm theologically kind of tweaking some things here but i think that can just be another way of being of behaviorally modifying yourself but you're not getting to the root of man i don't feel worthy and valuable and loved and secure in myself Mm -hmm. where did that get violated
1: yes so that's that's going into another person I really love, who's Gabor Mate. who's a Hungarian, by the way. I just got to point that out. Nice. Um, Shout out to the
0: Hungarian <laughs> podcast yes, listener. Yeah,
1: yeah, I got to represent. So, um, but what he says, and he has a great TED Talk for those.
0: Yeah, say his who are, name again.
1: Um, his name's Gabor Mate.
0: Okay. You have to um, say that because I'm not going to spell. So that.
1: it's in Hungarian. That's like two first names. So Mate is Matthew. So it's for yeah. Anyway. So like Gabriel Matthews, I do like his name. So, um, uh, but anyway, he has a great TED talk where he kind of uh, talks a lot about addiction. He has a, uh, a book that's phenomenal called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts that um, a lot of the people I work with love. Um, but he, anyway, one of his main points that he says is ask not what's wrong about the addiction but what's right about it like what is it doing for you like mm-hmm. so that's i think i think you're kind of basically thinking at the same thing which is what is it doing for you and if you don't really pay attention to that and you're just like oh here are these other healthy things you could do you're kind of missing the whole point of like it was doing something for you and that's and you're right that's really 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 important to look at and so i always ask my patients like what do you what did you love about your addiction you know especially at the beginning because you know over time like we talked about it's just gonna you're just gonna need it to feel normal so the what it initially did for you will be way you know way in the rearview mirror but at the beginning what did you love about it did it so the common things are and i'm sure you see kind of similar things but it helped me Experience less anxiety when I was with people. It helped me, you know, uh, let's say decompress after a long day at work. It helped, um, it helped me feel, uh, it kind of helped fill a void. It helped me have fun. It helped me connect to people. Um, although over the long term, addiction is always very isolating, but initially, sometimes it can help you feel connected. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's always some different things that.
0: And then I would say avoiding feelings, say, right?
1: Yeah, usually that's a probably maybe the most common one is it helped me numb my feelings, you know. So, or help me numb just in general. So, pain. yeah, help me numb pain. So, I would say that's probably one of the number one. You know, access is a huge driver of addiction. You know, just you have access to it. Like we all have access to smartphones, so mm-hmm. it, hence a lot of us are addicted to smartphones. But um, if if there's not like if something isn't readily accessible to you why would you seek something out? Probably because there's a pain that you're trying to numb and it kind of helps you medicate that.
0: And yeah. Yeah, and so my point to that is just that is the hard part for clinicians is it is that, yes, you have to get people sober, you have to get the dopamine set, you have to get the mind balanced back, the homeostasis brought back through behavior modification, which has to happen because you can't keep shooting drugs into your brain and be okay. And at the same time, I just think it has to be heavily in our attachment with our clients and our relationships also, I guess that's, that's what I'm trying to point out is the relationship in therapy is really the key to long-term success because what they don't, what they usually started seeking drugs and dopamine and all these things is either to avoid the pain or to get something they want. And so in therapy, when, when that primary issue is like an attachment failure or a trauma traumatic event, and that's what I mean by trauma, it doesn't have to be like a a death or a war or whatever, but like, those early childhood, you know, deficits that so many people don't even realize they have um, that say, yeah, I came from a great family. And it's like, well, did your dad ever hug you? And they're like, well, no, never. He never told me he loved me. It's like, well, that's super traumatic. That's yeah. not necessarily in a, you know, a outright abusive situation, but man, your brain didn't get the the dopamine and the serotonin, and the things it needed from actual human interaction. And so you, you were more susceptible to these things. And so for me, it's like, it's so hard to find that balance in in one hour a week or, you know, a couple hours a week or whatever group to give them all that they need to get there. And yet it works. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just, I'm always just teasing out like that dance of how much of it is just, you know, I don't want to get into the trap of just telling people addiction is doing different behaviors that people need to see that sobriety Mm -hmm. and recovery are two different things.
1: Mm Mm-hmm yeah clean time isn't recovery time yeah
0: yeah um, and so the recovery time has to be not only just behavior modification but figuring out the whys of where this all started from and, right. and what you were trying to feel
1: right and really investing in yourself to um, give yourself those things that were missing because even though we were talking about at the very very beginning about how our society so you know rich and easy basically there's a lot of things that are harder now, you know, like connecting to other people or finding meaning in your work. You know, I think we're both lucky in that we have very meaningful jobs, but I think a lot of people don't have, you know, don't have their that jobs. Injury, you know yeah. or just, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, life can be kind of boring or lack. Um,
0: well, the challenge, right?
1: Just, yeah. Lack a lot of the different things that we, that, you know, lack exercise. You know, we have all these, this compartmentalization when, when we would have been able to, Go out in the fields and work, and connect to our friends, and get exercise, and all you know, and you know, sunlight, and all the things that we need. But now, um, now, a lot of the things that we need, the simple things in life, are really hard to get. And I mm-hmm. think she talks about Anna Lemke talks about like uh, deaths of despair, or people like using as a because um, just because they're they're sad, you know, that they're 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 maybe like working in these kind of dead end jobs or just their life. You're know, like, is this all there is to life? You know, so we, I do want to, you know, have that caveat that even though we have live in a very rich society that there's certain ways that we're very impoverished. And, and mother Teresa said, you know, a long time ago, like, you know, she died in the late nineties, but she always said that the U S was one of the poorest nations because uh, people were so isolated and there's so much loneliness.
0: Mm, man, that's so rich right there. I mean, that we could do a whole podcast on that topic. But that, you know, that is the point of exactly what I'm trying to say is that the things that we need as human beings, our connection, our intimate relationships, our, you know, being outside, our connecting through all these things. And and you're you said it perfectly. So I'm just gonna repeat it and beat the dead horse. But you know, it's We act like we have it all together and we have all these things and yet we're still we continue decade after decade to be missing the things that are actually causing all the other things to be problematic Mm -hmm. and that's my point is we got to continue to dig into the roots and and through therapy and through connection and through the church and and i think that was christ's call to us is all of that like hey get out of the the nonsense and the content although we have to do that right don't murder anybody but hey being angry at your brother is the same thing at the heart You know, it's not that, you know, God's going to, you know, it is the same thing or it has the same consequences. It certainly doesn't. I'd rather you be ticked off at me than murder me. But the root is pride, ego, lack of faith, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to label it. And I think when I see people find true freedom, it's not necessarily that they always change all their behaviors, but it's that they find peace in who they are in those things.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and changing our expectations about life, you know, that I think. So, and she talks about this in in, in the book, which um, people should definitely read. Or, as I did, just listen to on Audible, because so, being on a computer all day, I actually no longer like to read. But, um, yeah, but... Uh, just... Oh, sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. What was it?
0: Um, we were talking about... Um what were we talking about? I got about
1: excited about my plug and then I'm <laughs> like, everyone should listen to it. then I lost my train of thought.
0: Yeah. Or, we we're just talking about the, um, we we're talking about happiness and, and the this stuff doesn't lead to all those things. I don't remember the, the... Oh
1: yeah. There we go. It, yeah. That, uh, yeah, we just, we live in such a rich nation, but if we, uh, we, we need just like the simple things essentially. And that's kind of what, will help make us happy you know and so just kind of going back to the expectations like reframing our expectations of that life has a lot of hardness you know a lot of things that are hard and that we oh this is yeah kind of what i was going to go on is that you know in social media and things we kind of see like lives are easy if we're not kind of like just feeling um uh, like um uh, we're just self-actualizing at every moment that our life isn't i think this is a lot of your success podcasts but just like th- that we're a failure or that we're not we're not do- we're not doing something right you know but that actually that's just kind of normal so kind of tuning out all these messages that we're getting that our life needs to feel like extraordinary at like every moment you know? yeah so
0: I think that's a little, I've been working on that a lot. You know, we have a four and a half and a seven and a half year old and and we came back from vacation we took him to the beach and we came back and like the, we got back on like a Friday. So we're like, we got two days to detox and rest, you know, from the actual vacation. And like really for the first time, my almost eight year old was like, I'm bored, you know, and I'm like, "Bro, bro, you know, we just spent umpteen thousand dollars to take you to the beach. And we say, he's like, I know we don't say bored in our house. I'm like, yeah, no, go find something to do. Go figure something out, like, or be bored, you know? And after about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, they stayed outside for like three hours coming up with some stupid game with dirt. And, you know, but we don't give anybody ourselves or anybody else any space to be bored. And we're losing the magic of boredom. We're losing the magic of just being in the moment and being patient, sitting at the table and not saying anything, not filling the space. And I think what I'm trying to teach my kids and myself is, that is our, that, you know, the mago Day, this image of God that we have, we're always seeking heaven. Like we're always seeking Christ. We're always seeking this wholeness that's not there. And it, scripture says the whole earth moans and groans for Christ's return. And there's this, it's not wrong to seek perfection and want perfection. It, it's our call to want that. But man, we also have to realize we're in the not yet. We're in this in-between. And no matter how much we love our spouse, no matter how much sex we have, no matter how much we drink, no matter what money we make, it's never going to be enough it's never going to feel complete because this is not the end of the story. This is just the middle of it. And, um, and I just try to teach my kids that and and our clients. And, and so, yeah, you're spot on and she's spot on with, with just that idea that there's got to be some, some balance to this crazy, entertained, filled dopamine chasing crazy life we're living. What, um, so we got a few more questions. So, what do you think are, I mean, maybe we've covered it, but what are some misconceptions um, about substance use that you see usually like with a, people struggling with addiction or even like family members for people that are like, Hey, I've been struggling with this. Or just people who are like, well, I don't have an addiction. You know, maybe they think I'm an idiot and not everybody has one. And they're like, these people are this way or whatever.
1: Yeah. Um. Well, I guess to start with the last thing first of what are, if someone thinks, you know, I don't have an addiction or, Maybe other people in their life think they have an addiction, but they think I, they don't. So um, I guess I would ask that person, like let's just for the sake of kind of making it a substance, like let's say alcohol or something, you know, um, or heroin, is that is that substance making your life, if you think of it in every single area, financially, socially, personally, spiritually, like just across the board, um, vocationally is it making you more of the person you want to be or less of the person you want to be so if you kind of really look at like am I connecting more to others or am I disconnecting more you know am I being more of the person I want to be am I living more up to the values I believe in am I less you know am I am I spending more money than I want to spend kind of like just going through all all areas of your life I would kind of do that self-assessment but in terms of like people things that of misconceptions people i think have about addiction i think the number one thing i see in people in treatment is in people in treatment is underestimating or overestimating their addiction so that could, that could look like two things and i actually think evil does this too so i think you can call it disease you can call it evil whatever you want to call it but i think evil in all its forms kind of works the same way it either puffs itself up to be so huge of you can never deal with me. You can never take me on. You're never going to defeat me, you know, addiction, whatever it is, yeah. you know. Or I'm so small. Me? Who? What yeah. are you talking about? I'm so innocuous. And, like, there's what? You know, how, why would you even suggest, you know, like, oh, I'm offended. You know, just just kind of the who me or the kind of monster superhero that's, like, the – like, the the – villain on steroids you yeah, know probably, yeah, for you, sure you know but the um, thanos
0: of a, the thanos of addiction yeah my so just fans.
1: don't don't even try to address me or don't even don't don't I mean, even I'm try to address me. me because i'm not an issue or don't even try because you'll never succeed you yeah. know so i think
0: God, that's, that's so, so good
1: i think uh often people m- most of the times in treatment i see people kind of kind of going between one or the other, you know, and really underestimating about like, you know, I'm just going to walk out of treatment and I've had a good time here, but I'm just kind of live going to live the life I was living before and do things the same. And it's going to turn out fine, you know? So, and I'm like, really, is it, you know, no big deal. You know, you just can, wow, that's, you know, I would love to live in your universe, you know, where it was that easy, you know? So I think dealing with an addiction, like, um, Especially because, you know, as we both know, it, with a diagnosable addiction, you have to look at the costs, right? It's, it's cost, all, it's all these costs, you know, financial, social, there's all these costs that the person has had. So um, in order to really deal with that addiction, you're going to have to do a lot of change, mm-hmm. a lot of change in your life, you know? So I think a lot of people underestimate how much is going to have to change.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's an interesting point, too, because as we've talked about, like, our society changing and things being more accessible, more affordable, no accountability, right? I call them the three A's, like accountability, affordability, accessibility are the things that keep it going. Um, it's not, you know, so many things like our phones aren't costing us our job, you know, aren't costing us our marriage. I mean, it does happen, but not as same right. as meth, right? right. Not, not the same yeah. as same as getting a DUI. And there's so many more of those little things that people, where I think, like you said, evil or Satan or spiritual warfare or whatever you want to say is just like, it's not that big of a deal. It's just social media. I was just on my phone for 20 seconds. Like, why are you complaining about this? You need to deal with this plank in your eye. Don't worry about this thing in me. And like, there's all those. Yes, of course, these these things that have huge consequences. But... I think Satan, again, man, that's such a beautiful analogy. I love that. I'm going to steal it for sure. But like both, it's the both and it's it's saying this is not that big of a deal. And there's, no, oh my gosh, you're doing meth. Like this is this huge thing you'll, you'll be addicted to forever. And man, that's where Satan wants us. He, he wants us to be asleep, you know, lulled to sleep in the lullaby and just, it's not that mm-hmm. big a deal. Put your passy back in your mouth. You know, Clinton idiot. You can post about your kids on Facebook all you want. You know, like, and again, I'm not saying you can't post about your kids on Facebook. I'm just saying being being mindful about it and being aware of it and how it's affecting your brain. Same thing with alcohol. Same thing with cigarettes. You want to smoke a cigarette? Great, but ask yourself those questions like you you asked earlier.
1: Yeah. How is this, for example, with the phone? Like, how is this stealing with from my relationship with my kids? How is this? they're not going to be little forever. How's this stealing from my being present to them? Or um, kind of on the the minimizing side or on the kind of overblown side, let's say with a, a substance addiction, you know, oh, my kids will never forgive me. I will never repair that relationship. You know, the kind of like despair of like things are so effed up beyond, beyond. I can never it's never going to be okay again, you know, and that's, that, those are all lies. You know? Yeah. A
0: hundred percent. I mean, I have guys, women, men who who had affairs, who, you know, addicted to pornography, prostitution, massage parlors, all the things, and they have better marriages now than they've ever had. But yeah, that, that fear of, if I tell her this, if I confess this to my church, if I confess this to my friends, if I tell a therapist, it's all gone, I'm going to die basically. Like my life is going to be over. And that's just not true. There's definitely going to be some hard, crap you have to do and some adjustments and some amends and some pain but man it's just not over with you know
1: yeah and that that kind of going back to one of our earlier points reminds me of one of the other things on a recommends but this is really common in the 12 step community and it's kind of well known in addiction but is radical honestly oh, yeah. honestly like not lying about stuff you know in because we're all kind of liars you know like i I was late because there you know was traffic or i was you know we're all we all kind of are prone to to those kind of like
0: White covering lies, up you yeah. know
1: yeah but just especially with an addiction because you have to and that's a whole topic in itself but w- why it causes so much lying you know just because you have to cover it up to keep it going um that your brain then just gets used to it and so people in early recovery will just find themselves lying about stuff that doesn't even matter you know so like just encouraging people to be honest of like, you know what? I told a lie right there. I have no idea why I did. It just like came out, but actually this is what's true, you know? So just kind of telling on themselves because, um, an addiction grows best in darkness. Mm -hmm. So just kind of bringing into the light.
0: That's so good. And it is, it is such a practice. I mean, I catch myself like, well, you know, we talk for 30 minutes or there's, you know, we did three and you just say these stupid things sometimes. And I'm with my wife. I'm like, no, I didn't do that three times. Like, I don't know why I even said that. Like, that's so dumb. You know, we'll just laugh about just how, cause we're, and again, when you're in good relationships and everybody's admitting that that's the thing, then we all just kind of laugh at our humanity, you know? And that's part of what I think recovery and group and healthy church. And it's not this us and them and we're the liars and the addicts and the manipulators and the traumatized. It's, we're all this. And so let's like, let's just be honest and talk about it and laugh at ourselves and have the humility to go, Oh my gosh. So, it, just this morning I was leaving and, and JC said something, um, Oh, she, I was going out to my truck and she was like, got a bunch of stuff in your truck. Cause I went to jujitsu. So I'm sure I had a bag and my gi and all my stuff. Cause I never get it out. Like instead of being an efficient person, getting out of my truck, getting all my stuff and coming in for the day, I pull up and I'm like, I want to see my kids and my wife. I'll come get this in 20 minutes. And then I never do. And it's in there for two days it's good purpose, but usually I get, de- well, not usually, sometimes I get defensive when she asked me and I'm like, golly, don't you understand my heart? And then I want to see the kids. And like, I'm not just a lazy slob. And this morning I was like, yeah, there's probably 30 things in there that I need to get. Cause I'm an idiot. You know, we just laughed and it's trying to get to that place where you can be there, where you can just laugh at yourself. You can name it an addiction. Yeah. Of course I struggle with this. Of course I struggle with drugs. Of course I want to drink because you know your story and they know your story and it's not this, this weight anymore. There's, it's the, I guess it's the boasting and weakness that scripture would call us to, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's good stuff. Um, so lastly, if someone wants uh, to get into treatment or has somebody who needs to get into treatment um, for addiction, what are kind of some of the next steps or what would you recommend for them to do? If if you as a therapist, I actually had this happen yesterday, but if somebody calls and says, Hey, they're finally ready, or hey, I have somebody struggling with alcohol, or I have somebody who's addicted to cocaine, or hey, I can't get my wife off the phone or my husband off the phone, or whatever it is, what would you say are kind of the next steps?
1: Yeah. So um, it, I'm going to kind of speak specifically to substance addiction, but um, I would say uh, kind of determine what your level of care, what you need. So uh, the, the first thing, is it a substance that requires a medical detox? So not all substance requires a medical detox, but some substances like alcohol um, and benzodiazepines like Xanax or Ativan, pin, anything within the generic as a pan at the end. Um, uh, it's dangerous to detox off those yourself. So I would definitely contact your nearest, uh, you know, substance use adi- addiction detox center and see if you qualify, you know, or see if the person you love qualifies, like how much have they been using and they'll advise you on that. Um, a lot of substances don't require medical detox, particularly like a stimulant, like cocaine or meth doesn't require. Opioids are kind of in the middle. They're it's a huge, it's they're really uncomfortable, like heroin and fentanyl. It's it's it'll feel like the worst flu of your life, like you're gonna die, but you won't. But fentanyl is a kind of tricky animal, so I would say that probably it's best to be in a medically managed situation just because the withdrawal is really awful and so in order to get through it successfully uh, i think it's almost impossible on your own it's really really hard so um so just kind of the safety issues out of the way of does this thing require medical detox and then kind of looking at like um there's so many different recovery options you know so there's 12 step which you know aa and, and narcotics anonymous na are the most the most uh, common but you know of course there's also like tr- treatment you know so is the environment where you live in is it or you can be able to abstain being in your environment you know because we need that like we talked about that break you know from it so sometimes people have like a spouse that drinks or uses or you know a roommate or something you know so their environment they need to get away so that's when I, I would recommend residential treatment or maybe outpatient um, often insurance companies are really stingy with um, residential. So maybe like an outpatient combined with the sober living or something where they're going to have a safe environment. But that that's um, one of the first things I would have someone consider. Um, there's also like Hope for Families, which is located in the South, um, is a offers like a recovery to go program. So I know there's, and I'm sure other people do too, where you don't have to, uh, uh, like go into treatment. Um, But I think treatment works best when you're really around other people. And usually a substance disorder is, I don't know, maybe you have different experience, but I've I've always worked with people where they're there multiple hours a day, you know, if not all day. So by the time you have a really intense substance use disorder, you require pretty intense treatment and it's Mm -hmm. not like once a week that can really deal with that. At least at the beginning, right at the beginning, that won't cut it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, you, like you said, the ninety days is a huge the reset, and if pe- uh, if people can afford it, their insurance could cover it. All those th- you know stars align. Yeah, I mean the best option is to take that time. People don't want to do it. You know, people are like I go away from work. Like people are going to find out. And again, it's that therapeutic kind of conversation of is it worth it, and what's the long term ramification of you not doing right. it? You're going to lose all those things anyway.
1: Right, because the nature of addiction is that it's progressive. So in 12 step, they say jails, institutions, and death. Like that's where this is going, you know? So is that what you want to do? Do you want to lose everything? Or do you want to like put the brakes on it now and, you know, go on a, a what is it like paid family leave? Or, you know, that yeah. in California, that's what we, you know, you can, you can take time off. Um, and so a lot of people get paid to be in treatment, you know, not quite as much as they make from their jobs, but pretty close, you know, so. Um, and also a lot of jobs like, you um, a lot of jobs react really differently to people who ad, kind of admit they have a problem you know and of course different people have different comfortability levels of letting their manager know but um, for example UPS you know it's a big employer um, they're a big national corporation if they catch you if they test if you they catch you on a drug test dirty like you can lose your job but if you volunteer to go to treatment if you want to go to treatment and you let them know then they'll support you in going to treatment. So, you know, obviously every employer is different, but if you, I think there's often a really big difference between if they find out cause you've like ruined something versus you're kind of acknowledging and owning up to the fact that you have a problem.
0: Absolutely. Life hack for people out there. Um, if you're an, an addict and you really, really want help and you can't pay for it, find a company that'll pay for it for you, go work for them and then confess. I mean, that might sound manipulative or whatever, but like, I just want people to get sober. I want people to get help. So companies are set up to know that that's going to happen and want people to get help and then want to give them the job and keep them the job. Like people do care enough to do that, surprisingly, in the world that we still have. Yeah. So um, if you're out there and you're like, there's no option. No, there is. Find a job that will pay for your treatment. Go, confess, yeah. keep your job, come back and work and find some sobriety.
1: Yeah, most, most um, commercial and private insurances... Is- will pay for substance use treatment and then and then even if you have like what we have here in california medi-cal or i don't know what the equivalent is in louisiana but just like a state funded it's actually in a way slightly better to have medi-cal because they fund much longer amounts of treatment Mm -hmm. so the government will actually um so for example in in residential private insurance maybe you have one 30 days maybe 60 days if you're lucky um, Medicaid is currently paying like three months, four months, sometimes five months. You know, so now, granted, Medicaid pays a lot less to those treatment providers, and the downside is those places are a lot um, less bougie. You yeah, know, less so it's resourced. not many board. Yeah, it's less resource. <laughs> you know, so but the amount of time you'll get away from wherever you are is long is longer. You'll get more treatment time funded. So there there can be dropped like pros and cons to kind of, even if you have just, um, you know, kind of your state insurance or federal insurance.
0: Yeah. It's good stuff. Man, this has been, this has been a fun podcast. What, uh, do you have any closing thoughts, comments, anything you missed that you want to say or talk about?
1: Um. Well, so of course I recommend that people, you know, read that book, but another book that I really recommend in tandem, which I never thought I would say is that I've got Russell Brand. It's probably backwards.
0: oh yeah, yeah. No, that's good.
1: But I love Russell Brand. Is like he. I'm, I'm actually using his book. You know, kind of going back to what am I doing? I'm using his book to work the 12 steps around my phone. So what he does is help people work the 12 steps around anything. And he, for people who don't know, he Russell Brand is an actor and a comedian, and he has a long history of addiction to hard drugs, um, and has a been in recovery for i want to say like 17 years or something like that um but he's a huge proponent of the 12 steps um which are are basically rooted in christianity they came out of a church movement um the oxford group that's another podcast but um anyways so i think between these two books dopamine nation and uh uh russell brand's book recovery i think those are really good. Those give some really good tools to just kind of like get started on your own, you know. And then I also love, um, you know, because I'm like addicted to YouTube. I happen to know uh, <laughs> like um, the there's a, a YouTube channel called Hope for Families, which breaks things down very simply and very in a really really easy to, way to understand. So I really recommend that as well.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, Russell Brand's great. Uh I just actually texted my dad something yesterday that he had posted. I so will watch his podcast and listen to his stuff and he kinda has a news have you ever listened to the news podcast thing he does? No. Oh, you should totally check it out. I um, love. Yeah. Now you're in California, so he's very he's uh he's 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 pretty moderate, which is crazy. Like um he you would expect him to be extremely liberal just because he's an actor and he's a comedian and all these kind of things. But he always is, not always, most of the time, in, in my opinion, has a very moderate view. Like, he takes in both sides politically. He brings in, he's hilarious. And he just doesn't cut anybody any slack either. So it's like, it's not Trump. It's not Biden. He's not on either side. He's just, like, being honest about the facts. He does a lot of stuff on, like... um like during COVID or during uh, the the war in Ukraine, like just looking at the facts and following the paper trails and talking through certain things and any, it's not way over here where you have a tinfoil hat on and it's not way over here where you, you know, just buy into all of it, but it's, it's a really, really balanced view. And I was texting my dad yesterday. I was like, who would have thought Russell brand would be like my voice of reason when it comes to like, you know, news. I'm like constantly like I'll read something and I'll go and read something he posted. I'm like, well, that was a way better way of looking at that than anything that I saw on these 24 hours news net- networks. I'm like, Oh, and he also is hilarious why he does it as you know. He's so, hilarious. Oh my gosh yeah, it's and so he, has, funny.
1: he has a side-by-side comparison of the 12 steps, how they were originally written and his own version, which is, is full of expletives and extremely easy to understand. And I love it. And so, yeah. Um, language
0: warning for my Christian brothers and yeah, sisters. He is not know, uh <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's awesome. He really gets to to the heart of things really quickly. So. Yeah,
0: that's hilarious that you recommend him. That's awesome. I mean that that, <laughs> that fits because he's great. I'm gonna. I need to get that book because I I like his stuff a lot. Um. Well, cool. Any other any other thoughts? Questions for me? Comments?
1: Um. No. I I hope people just uh, take this seriously because and I think we'll have to take it seriously yeah. one way or another because I think we're gonna kind of continue to see these trends in society. So I think we're gonna. Keep needing to have have these conversations and have answers. Like, what are we going to do with this
0: problem? Absolutely, I'm with you. I tell people all the time, especially my newer therapists, like strap in because the next five to ten years are going to be drastically different than the last five to ten years, and it's not looking good. And you know, it's not to be a Debbie Downer. It's just to be realistic about when these 15 year olds hit 20, or when these 15 year olds hit 25 they're not the same human beings that we've had for all, all of history. And that's so people do not get that they're dealing with a different brain, a different prefrontal, a different worldview. I mean, you know, there's always been shifts in enlightenment and awareness and, you know, culture and and Roman empire, you know, all these historical things. Yeah. It's been, there's been shifts, but nothing, nothing like what we've seen in the last 10 years and we're doing little about it. And so that's, I hope I really thank you so much Stephanie for coming on and talking through this with me because at least the people who follow our podcast and listen to it, you know, they're sharing it, they're sharing this information and that's what I gives me hope. It's like, all we can do is influence the spheres of influence we have, you know, and that's all we're called to is just say the truth, do the next right thing. And hopefully those people then take that and do the next right thing. And, and we impact, uh, the remnant, so to speak. So I appreciate you. Thank you guys for listening. Um, uh, check out Stephanie. Do you have a website or anything like that, that you don't know, have any, any of that stuff for them to follow? Um, okay. all right. So Stephanie doesn't have that, but she's an amazing person. So you, you can, uh, you can, you can follow me for her. links. I'll see so. you
1: if you come to Loma Linda and need detox. That's right.
0: Yeah. And if you're in that area and you need some detox and some people do, um, I'll put your stuff on there where that's at. Um, so thanks for coming on and, and thanks for listening guys and just, you know, like, and subscribe and do all the things, you know, I'm not big about that, but if you want to do it, Um, God bless you. Have a good week.